So, brethren, um, again, it's good to be back. The first two sermons that I had the privilege of preaching here dealt with the subject of the jealousy of God. Elliot continued that theme, and I, I wanted to touch on that theme a little bit more here this morning, but I would also like to incorporate some of the things that I had the privilege of teaching on at the conference. And so there's going to be a, a little bit of a melding of these themes and ideas here this morning. And I will confess and admit it that uh, much of the message that I preached there Sunday night uh, I would like to share with you, again, in order to essentially recapitulate some of the things that I did talk to these men about. The text of Scripture that I would like for us to think about here this morning to have our thoughts directed by is the text of Revelation 19. If you could turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Revelation 19, please. be reading Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. For the Apostle John says this, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude And as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What a breathtaking section of scripture that is. You know, John promised at the beginning of this apocalypsis blessings to those who hear the words of this prophecy and to those who read it. And that is so true. And brethren, someday we're going to be there. This is our eternal future, and it is glorious. It is beautiful beyond measure. Amidst all this beauty and all this splendor and the wonder of the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the people of God, 
Amidst all of this, though, it's rather striking when we get to verse 10, because in verse 10, something terrible happens. John sins. Amidst the announcement of all that is going to take place by means of the angel, and once the angel declares that these are the words of God and they're the very true words of God, there are no other, we have this grave error of John. What does he do? He bows down and worships the angel. By the way, let me say this. I'm thankful that John was faithful to record his error. There's no pretending that this didn't happen. There's no sense in which there's a denial of the event. John admits to what he did. I believe that he does so because we need to look at verse 10 and understand that what happens here really instructs us in a very important way. In fact, John's sin, his error, helps us to remember that we're frail creatures just as he is. Even an apostle can make a a mistake like this. All of us have to understand that though God is to be worshipped alone, anyone can fail to rise to that standard of the worship and glory of God alone. In this verse, really, there are three lessons I want us to consider together. And we'll look at them one after the other. First of all, I want us to think about how this verse teaches us about the glory of God in genuine worship. You know, when we worship God and honor him and make him the highest priority of our life, God is glorified when that takes place. That's an important principle, and it really brings us back to the principle of the jealousy of God. God is jealous for his glory, and he deserves glory. He deserves our worship, and he deserves our devotion. So we need to think about that, and we'll tie that into some of the discussion that we've already had about the jealousy of God. Secondly, this verse, verse 10, teaches us something about the glory of God in and through his messengers. That's what we are as the servants of God, as the children of God. We're messengers for Christ. When I witness to people, I'm not there to talk to them about me. It's not about me. It's about Christ. I can talk about my testimony and how it is that the Lord saved me, but I'm not the chief end of that conversation. The chief end of that conversation is Christ, because only Christ can save What a privilege it is to be a messenger for him. This too we need to talk about. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider this remarkable statement, this concluding statement that is issued by the angel, whereby the angel reminds us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's a remarkable statement, and we could actually spend a lot more time on that, but we'll summarize that and think about the implications of that statement itself. But let's go back to the first lesson, the first point that we find in this verse and how it is that this verse shows us that God is glorified through genuine worship. God is glorified through genuine worship. And John's bad example is really kind of the antithetical lesson that is given to us. John begins this verse confessing his own rebukable action when he says, And I fell at his feet, the feet of the angel, to worship him. Don't mistake the language that is employed here. The word worship comes from the word proskuneo. It simply means to prostrate oneself before another and offer homage, worship, to another. Brethren, did John know better than to do this? You know, how often do we learn theology that, and we sometimes we have a lot of head knowledge and we don't have as much application and devotion and obedience. It's easy to know a lot of things, but it's harder still to take what we know and to put it into action. Well, we could say that about John. 
and I'm not saying this to be hard on him, but we need to look at what John did and say, you know what? I do that too. John knew better. He had better theology. When we were talking about the jealousy of God, remember, the Lord instructs Israel in this way and says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And notice the language, for, for, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to preach on the jealousy of God. It's because of that Hebrew word, key, translated as for. It's what we would call an explanatory conjunction. God is saying, you know what, here's why you shouldn't be worshiping anything else, anything among the realm of creation. It is because I alone deserve honor and glory. And you need to know this about me. I'm a jealous God. And as we talked about before, he calls himself by name Jealous. I believe that this is such a fundamental idea. It is so foundational that it was worthy to take the time to talk about that in my beginning here in this ministry amidst you all. May God help us to understand the beauty of his jealousy, the beauty of his worthiness, the beauty of the fact that he does deserve all honor, glory, and praise. You know, whenever we exalt the creature rather than the creator, it is a direct and, and personal, this is important, it is a direct and personal offense to God. And just as I say those words, I can guarantee you that I, I still am learning this. Every creature, every human being, every child of God can know this idea, but we're still learning of the importance of this principle. And we're learning more how to apply it. One of the things that we talked about at the conference, and this is something that really resonated with the pastors, I talked a lot about the problem of what I call celebritism, the ism. By the way, if you look that word up in the dictionary, you're not going to find it. It's, I, I admit it. I'm making words up. I get it. But... Uh, I like the word because the extension, the addition of the word ism reminds us of the fact that when we exalt men, we create isms, divisions, factions. We, we mess everything up. It's my conviction that the modern church has become dangerously distracted from her high calling to adore and reverence Christ alone And what has tempted and lured her from this precious priority is that forbidden fruit whereby the homage that is due to the Creator is instead directed towards the creature. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. And such a tragedy as this is guaranteed whenever the church fails to live and minister in the adoration and fear of Christ, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.21. When godly fear, adoration, and reverence diminishes in the heart of the believer, the weeds of ungodly fear and adoration will grow in its place, resulting in either man-centered fear or adoration. Man-centered fear is evident whenever the creature is seen as having greater authority and power than the creator himself. In this context, the dread of enmity with men, persecution, or social rejection will often lead individuals to obey men rather than God. On the other hand, man-centered adoration is that corruption whereby individuals are exalted and celebrated in a manner that diminishes Christ. 
What is so dangerous about this idolatrous corruption is that it is often quite subtle and unnoticed. For this reason, it's for this reason that I I've coined the term celebritism to help us to think about the fact that it's a very common problem in our society to take men of renown and to elevate them and exalt them and really make them the authority of our lives. Now, mind you, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the work of God's grace in and through his instruments, but the point is not to exalt and worship the instrument. What we ought to be celebrating and exalting is the God who uses frail instruments for his glory. And that distinction is not a small one. It's crucial. In reality, we live in a world that exalts its celebrities, idols, professional athletes, pop icons, movie stars, prominent politicians, even internet idols. But the church must resist such worldly conformity. When it fails to do so, it yields a banner of of identity which exalts men rather than Christ. And this is often done under the false assumption that popularity is a guarantee of veracity and piety. Being popular doesn't mean you're godly or wise. It just means a lot of people are following you, and that could be, well, a bad thing, especially depending upon who's actually following you. This is why I wanted to begin with the subject of the jealousy of God, because God is jealous for his glory, because his glory is his, and he's jealous for the devotion of his people, because He deserves our devotion and loyalty. By the way, at the conference, uh, it was kind of a latent discovery, but remember I was uh, talking to you about how it is that the Hebrew word kana, translated as jealous, is sometimes translated as zeal. And if you look it up in the dictionary, the dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, doesn't make a lot of distinction between jealousy and zealousness or being zealous. And the reason why that's so is because both terms are rooted in the Greek word zelos. So unsurprisingly, in the Spanish, you know how many words you have for all of this? Instead of having jealousy and zealous, it's just zelos. Zelos. It all bears the idea of having a hot, burning passion and desire, a jealousy for that which is yours. And as I said before, the reason why jealousy is often sinful among humans is because we get confused about what's ours. But God's glory is his. And the devotion of heart that is due to him is his rightful claim among his people. He deserves loyalty. After all, he's the one who changed our hearts, made us willing servants, Psalm 110 and verse 3, and made it so that we now love him rather than this world above all. Why? Because he first loved us, and we just sang about that a moment ago. In Hosea chapter 6, the Lord says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. You just vanish like that. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For, there it is again, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want your devotion to me. I want you to know me and love me and serve me. I don't want just trinkets and sacrifices as an end but I want you to sacrifice your very heart, soul, and mind to me. Why? 
because he deserves it. (laughs) He's redeemed us to this end that we would have him as our first love and greatest joy. So when John bowed down to worship the angel, it's like a bomb going off. By the way, and I'm not making excuses for the Apostle John, but one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews at the beginning of the book of Hebrews goes on and on and on talking about the supremacy of Christ over the, Jew, uh, the, over the uh, angels, the Jewish mythology that was in place at the time taught a doctrine that was contrary to all of that. There were, there were traditions that taught that the angels, some angels were on a par with God himself. There was actually an angel by the name of Metatron, a mythical angel that some Jewish rabbis taught was equal with God in his power. Even advocating that God would sometimes take a vacation and let Metatron take over the universe, in a sense. By the way, the name Metatron, it sounds like some sort of a comic book hero, right? But that's something that was actually taught in the day, and so it was needful for people to understand, no, Jesus is not another angel. He's the one through whom all things came into being, and he even created the angels and uses them as servants and ministers for his glory. So who do we worship? The angels? No, we worship our Lord We worship Jesus Christ, for he is God. You know, the lesson of John's mistake should remind us of the fact that it's very possible for us to get caught up in an emotional moment. And I would say to you, I read the book of Revelation, chapter 19 in particular, and I get emotional just reading it. This is so beautiful. It is, it just wrenches my heart in the best of ways. So I want to be there. But with all the emotional reality of the moment, that still doesn't give John an excuse to blaspheme God. Brethren, the point is this. We're affective creatures. We all have emotions. Some people are more emotional than others. But one thing I do know is, is that Worship must never be governed by our emotions, nor our intentions, but all must be governed and guided by God and his word. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people, and really I'm I'm talking to individuals who are governed by their emotions and their feelings and their subjectivism, rather than the authority of God himself. And by the way, I'm a part of that problem. Every member of the human race struggles with this. As did John. We are affective creatures. And we need to keep this in mind. How we feel or what our intentions are govern nothing. They don't make reality. You know, we're talking to a lot of people today who identify as the opposite sex. And by their own feelings and intentions, they insist that a man will tell you he's a woman and a woman will tell you he's a man. It's like, that's not how this works. You know, when the church starts sounding like that, that's a problem. All our thoughts, all our feelings must be anchored in this crucial truth. Our Lord is a jealous God. He is jealous for the devotion of his people, for the worship that he receives from his people. And note this, he is not indifferent for one second when we give that devotion to anyone or anything else. Ultimately, God is glorified. When we embrace him as our first love, for our Lord delights in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of him rather than burnt offerings. Verse 10 gives us yet another lesson. And it's a remarkable lesson. 
This verse helps us to understand that God is glorified in and through his messengers. It's stated explicitly in the text when the angel said, and it's a rather punctiliar, a forceful thing, when he basically says, stop it. When John is worshiping the angel, the, the angel just responds and says, stop it. Don't do that. Why? I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. When the angel says, and this is remarkable, when the angel says, I am your fellow servant, he uses the word sundulos, sundulos, fellow bond slave. By the way, that's true, but it's a, it's a remarkable thing to think about the idea of an angel saying this. Angels are truly awesome creatures. When I say awesome, I'm, I mean what it, that word means. Fearful. To be in the presence of an angel is a fearful thing. They're glorious. They're powerful. They're there's something very intimidating about the manner in which they reflect and convey the glory of God, such that human flesh tends to tremble in their presence. John even went to the extent of worshiping him. But instead of the angels saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really amazing, aren't I? <laughs> Glorious, powerful, you know. No, that's the purview and confession of Satan. The angel says, no, I am a fellow bond slave, sundulos. I'm a sundulos along with your brethren. I'm a fellow, I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he's saying, listen, I with you, I'm a bond slave of Christ. You're a bond slave of Christ. All the other servants of, of all the other disciples of Jesus Christ were all soon doulos. We're all bond slaves of Christ. And, and it's interesting when he says, who hold the testimony of Jesus. You don't really get it in the NASB, but he uses a, a present active participle to give us this description of who and what he is and who and what we are. It's a very important thing. Many times in the scriptures we have participles to describe the an individual or a thing in terms of their activity. Before I injured my back, I was a runner. All I'm saying is when I say I'm, I was a runner, it's that I like I like to run a lot. That's using a, a kind of a verbal to describe what I like to do. And oftentimes we identify people in terms of their activity and their conduct. So when he says that I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold, and the word that he uses here, the participle, is echontone, from the root word echo, which simply means to hold something, to carry something. And so basically the angel is saying, I'm one who holds and carries the testimony of Jesus, as are you, as are all the disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's our mission. We hold the testimony of Jesus. Why is this important? Because what we hold is the most valuable message ever given to humanity. This is our central calling. We carry the most important message given to mankind. It is an inspired message, a prophetic revelation that is without corruption because men were born along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter writes, wrote not their own will, but by the will of God, they wrote the very words of God himself.
I never imagined that at this point in time in my life, with the way in which our world has changed, that I would have to order so many things online. Now you can order meals, you can order groceries. I mean, we ordered kefir grains one year. I never thought I would even formulate that sentence, but we're getting stuff delivered all the time. Um, Imagine if you received a message from heaven saying you're going to get, get a delivery from God. You open up your door on delivery day and you find a Bible. You shouldn't be surprised because that's exactly what God has delivered to us. You know what's remarkable in Ephesians chapter 4? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about how it is that God creates the unity of the body of Christ, but that we're called to preserve it. And then he talks about the manner in which Christ sacrificially descended from heaven, sacrificed himself on the cross, ascended into the heavens. It is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And as a result of his great work, he has lavished upon the church gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, And what are the pastors and teachers to do? They're to preach and proclaim the already delivered word of God. And that this is the provision that God has given to us for our unity and maturation so that we would not be as children tossed about by every winded wave of doctrine. In short, what God has delivered to us And what we are to be carriers of is his sure and perfect word. The stuff I get online, it breaks, or I lose it, or all kinds of things happen. Entropy is uh, faithful to do that to all the things that we own. It's all going to rust and be destroyed eventually, but never the eternal word of God. This is what we have. And this is what we are to be the echo-tone of, the carriers of the very testimony or words of Jesus. And what a privilege that is. And when we think about what God has supplied, what we think, when we think about what he has gifted to the church, remember this, we can't improve upon the words of God's already perfect word. We can't adjust it so as to make it more appealing or acceptable to others. And I can assure you that God's prophetic revelation is not fallible, something that we talked extensively at the conference about. It's not fraught with error. Moreover, as the bond slaves of Christ, we are forbidden to add to it or take away from this prophetic revelation because doing so would be a corruption to what he has entrusted to us already. Paul understood this principle when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your doulos, slaves, bond slaves, for Jesus' sake. I don't preach myself. Paul didn't preach himself. No preacher should ever preach himself. And no servant of Christ, no child of God should ever make it about themselves. We're carriers of the testimony of Jesus to the end that he would be glorified. By the way, I may have alluded to this already, but we need to be on the ready with all these discussions about social justice and the history of the nation and slavery and everything. These are good conversations, by the way. These are gospel opportunities. Let's not shun the word slavery because of the worldly connotations of slavery and the manner in which we have wickedness that abounds when we talk about slavery. Let us tell people that we're bond slaves of Christ, but let's clarify what we're talking about. When Paul refers to himself as a bond slave of Christ, remember, what is it that we're talking about when we talk about being a bond slave or being bound, literally, by the authority of our master. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, he says that the love of Christ, suneke, constrains us. What are the bonds that hold us? Well, they're the bonds of his, his eternal love. 
So when John says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. That's what we're saying. That's not compulsory servitude. That's joyful servitude that comes from a new heart, which is the work of God alone. And so it is the the believer's joy to be an echo tone, a carrier, a holder of the testimony of Jesus, the very words of Christ. And those who carry and convey and communicate the very words of Christ, the testimony of Jesus, they're not to be worshipped. Not an angel, not the apostles of yesteryear, not your favorite pastor, radio personality, or New York Times bestseller, best-selling author, or any other servant of God. God alone is to be exalted. And his word alone is to be heralded such that we are left with a sense of wonder and praise for the Almighty rather than for the instrument. You know, it's a remarkable thing that when John the Baptist was asked the question, why is it that all were going to Christ rather than him? Rather than competing for the attention of the people, John the Baptist, this humble forerunner of Christ, simply confessed what? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's why I'm here. It's not about me. I'm not here to preach me. I'm here to preach Christ and to exalt him. Brethren, I submit to you that John's humble and reverent confession regarding the supremacy and worthiness of Jesus Christ is one that we all desperately need. It reminds me of that beautiful picture in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember when Christian was brought to a portrait depicting one who was described in this manner, the individual was called very grave or solemn or serious. He had eyes that were lifted up to heaven. The best of books was in his hand. The law of truth was written upon his lips. The world was behind his back. He stood as if pleading with men, and a crown of gold did hang over his head. What is this? This is the portrait of an echo tone a carrier of the testimony of Jesus who looks to heaven as his true hope, who looks to Christ as his only hope, who knows that he has the best of books in his hand because this is the very gift that God has given to us so that we would be faithful carriers of the testimony of Jesus. The third lesson that we have in this verse is still quite remarkable. The angel said to John, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says. And then here again, another explanatory conjunction for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's a remarkable statement. In its most simplified form, what you have there is what's called the linking verb. And whenever you have linking verbs, you just need to think of the idea of an equal sign. So A equals B. The the two things in the sentence are being equated, we would say. Okay, so what's being equated in this sentence? Well, the testimony of Jesus is equal to the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting... All of the translation of the English translations have the word spirit not in capitalized, not capitalized, but lowercase. And I believe that that's a correct translation. Why? Because the word for spirit oftentimes is used, if it's not a reference to um, the internal spirit of, of a man or the spirit of God, it's oftentimes used to speak of the attitude or disposition 
or intrinsic nature of a person or a thing. So Paul uses it, just to give you one example, Paul uses the word spirit to speak of his attitude and disposition. He says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit or attitude or disposition of gentleness? So what we're talking about is is that the word spirit can speak of the the character qualities of a person or a thing. And, And in this case, that's what we have. We're talking about the character qualities of prophecy. This equal statement is key because it helps us to understand this. The nature, we could say, of prophecy equals the testimony of Jesus. Or we could put it this way. When we're talking about prophetic revelation, what are we talking about? We're talking about the very words of our Lord. Without addition, without subtraction, they're his words, and they are true. The word testimony oftentimes is translated and speaks of the idea of one's witness or a testimony that is given regarding facts. If you ever have to appear in court and you speak as a witness, you're going to give testimony to the facts that you know, and you have to swear that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Sadly, not all witnesses speak the truth, but when we speak of the testimony of the witness of Christ, everything he said is true because he himself is truth. And we're reminded of the fact that God cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. Have you noticed that Jesus repeatedly taught and prefaced his teaching by saying, Amen, Amen? When we say Amen, we're saying this is true. I affirm this. I agree with this. Well, Jesus would often teach, prefacing his teachings with the words, Truly, Truly, or Amen, Amen. Why? Because everything that came out of his mouth was truth. And it wasn't just his words that were his testimony, but the very reality of the testimony of the Father and the reality of his own works that really bring together this idea of his testimony or the testimony of Jesus. Jesus said this in John chapter 5. He says, If I alone bear witness of, of myself... My testimony is not true. In other words, he doesn't act alone apart from the Godhead. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he is born witness of the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me, yet yet you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Jesus, his very testimony, the works which are a part of his testimony, and the Father who testifies that, yes, this is my beloved Son, that entire reality of the testimony of our Savior, it is all true. And this is why Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, And all this helps us to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the nature of prophecy. The very nature of prophecy is the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're his words, and they're his words alone. Not the words of men, but the words of our Lord And it's in this sense that we also understand and are reminded of the fact that our Savior was a prophet. Really, the the greatest template of all the other prophets that ever served and ministered in the name of the Lord. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 reminds us of the fact in the section and chapter on Christ our mediator that he is our chief prophet, priest, and king. And so when the Apostle Paul talks about how it is that the church 
is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he says that Christ Jesus himself is the very cornerstone of that revelatory foundation. And by the way, that's a finished foundation. You don't build a house by building the foundation, then the house, and then, and then keep adding on to the foundation. You just build the foundation, then you work on the house. And that's what we as a church are being built up upon. It is the finished foundation of what God has revealed through his apostles, through his prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone. So when we speak of God's prophetic revelation, we're speaking of something that is unique and is not to be compared to or conflated with the mere words of men. The nature of prophecy is that it is the testimony of our Lord, the testimony of Jesus, without corruption, without addition, without subtraction. And that's why Peter says in Second Peter that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That, that is so similar to the very language that we just heard in, in the Scripture reading. All Scripture is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. And that's why it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because it's from him. The reason why we spent all this time during the conference talking about these things is because we have in the modern day and have had for some time in the, in the last 80 or so years an advancement of the idea of a third category of prophecy called fallible prophecy by teachers like Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem tells us that this fallible New Testament prophet, which is this new category of thinking, is one who speaks with a fair amount of accuracy. He says that such a prophet should be viewed as, uh, such a revelation through such a prophet should be viewed as the prophet's own fairly accurate, but not infallible report of something he thinks, though not with absolute certainty, has been revealed to him by God. That, by the way, you can go back and diagram that sentence on your own time. It's a bit of a scrambled mess, but at the end of the day, what you have is, is you have a notion of prophecy that is only fairly dependable. It sounds like most of the vehicles I've ever owned in my life. I mean, the, the vehicles that I've owned in my life, uh, they're broken down and old, but at least they're paid for. But I mean, fairly dependable, certainly not infallible, and abounding with uncertainty. I had a 74 Ford van that whenever you turn the ignition key, it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. It might work. We might even go down the road. It, it caught fire one time. Ask my bride about that. But we must never think of prophecy like that. Thanks be to God that genuine prophecy is not that. That's why we can know that we have a sure word. And as the carriers of the testimony of Jesus, we know that we have a truly, truly sure word, the very words of our Lord. You know, there are only two categories of prophecy. Peter spoke of the genuine prophecy in 2 Peter chapter 1, using the word prophetes. Then in chapter 2, he speaks of the pseudo-prophetai. What is that? That's a false prophet. Those are the biblical categories that we have. There is no third category of someone who is speaking in error, adding to or taking away from the revelation of God, and yet remaining a valid prophet. No such thing. That is a contrivance, and brethren, it is a dangerous contrivance. The danger of which the Apostle John testifies to at the end of this very book. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, 
which are written in this book. Why such a solemn warning? Because God is a jealous God. And the words that he has given, we are not free to modify, add to, or take away from. Because his word gives him glory. The good news is, is that our great prophet, Jesus Christ, has given us these words of prophetic revelation when he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a lutron, a ransom for many. What he promised to do, he did. Because all his words are true, and his works give testimony to the veracity of his own nature and all his deeds. What our prophet, priest, and king said he would do, he did. And by this, our Lord is glorified. Will you pray with me? Our precious Heavenly Father, there's so much more to say about these principles. Lord, help us to glean from these texts all that we need. Grant us mercy and grace, Lord, to herald your name, your word, and to seek your glory. Lord, as we prepare to come and partake in this table, we pray that you would indeed prepare our hearts for this, to to look to Jesus, to remember him and his sacrifice, that you, Lord, in all things, and our Savior, would receive the glory. Lord, we ask it in the precious name of Jesus.